0: global value investing through a different lens. Antipodes searches the world for great companies trading at attractive valuations. Welcome to Good Value by Antipodes, a global fund manager with offices in Sydney and London. On Good Value, hear discussions about Antipodes' best investment ideas and perspectives on industry and macroeconomic trends. Please remember this content is general information only, it is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. It's Alison Savis and welcome to our quarterly market update. Joining me is Antipode's CIO Jacob Mitchell.
1: Hi Alison. Great to join the podcast again, after what has been a a very interesting start to 2021.
0: It certainly has. It's hard to believe that it was only in January, the Democrats were able to secure a blue sweep somewhat unexpectedly. And Biden has wasted no time announcing multiple stimulus packages. We've had the GameStop crowd and coordinated short squeeze impacting some of the biggest funds in the industry. Now markets are at all time highs, we've got a bubble brewing in Bitcoin. So where do we start?
1: Well, let me give you my views on, I guess, the bigger picture and that has unfolded really since November's vaccine announcements. Most significantly, we started to see a change in market leadership towards the end of last year. And this rotation did gather pace in the first quarter with the acceleration of the vaccine rollout and continued stimulus. Also of significance, the move in bond yields. Until recently, U.S. Treasuries had lagged other expressions of the reopening trade. And as the yield curve steepened, the rally has broadened out beyond growth cyclicals like like semiconductors to more economically sensitive parts of the market, such as energy, financials and, and beaten up retail stocks. Possibly the, the key question for our investors and listeners is whether there is sufficient stimulus in the system to overcome, you know, reopening setbacks and underpin this ongoing rotation. We think the global economy remains, you know, in a cyclical recovery phase. So, you know, that's the most important thing, and that the rotation really still has has legs. However, you know, what we really mean by this is that the very high valuation dispersion that has defined the age of QE is starting to contract, and as this happens, new winners will will emerge.
0: Let's first take a look at fiscal stimulus. Policymakers have thrown everything at COVID, but the numbers really are astounding, aren't they?
1: Yeah. Look, in some ways, the policy response to the pandemic is more exceptional than the pandemic itself. Yeah. You know, you know, let's let's think about this for a moment. You know, defined narrowly. of all money ever created occurred last year, which is really quite astonishing, and it's been led by the US. Money creation in the US is about 30% higher than the rest of the world. The printing press has been cranked to fund aggressive fiscal stimulus, which is really a change from uh, the QE framework that we've had prior to COVID. So we've had a rebound in the economic cycle, um, as activity has started to normalise in response to that stimulus. But we think the cycle still has some way to go, given this backdrop. But with the implosion of high profile family office, uh, uh, Achiges, I think that's how you pronounce it, and credit provider Greensill, there are also some warning signs that animal spirits are pretty well expressed. And, you know, we need to also consider the downside risks.
0: Now, over the quarter, we've spoken at length internally about US households being in a pretty strong position thanks to income stimulus. And one of the figures that we've looked at is that personal savings are now 20% of disposable income versus 7% pre-COVID.
1: That's right. I mean, US households have above trend excess savings of around $3 trillion. Uh, now, that breaks down uh, at around $1 trillion, courtesy of Underspending in 2020, and the other two trillion is is really stimulus. You know, effectively transfers from the government. So we've got excess savings of three trillion combined with pent up demand from lockdown. This is pretty powerful. Even if just one third of the three trillion is spent, it represents five percent of US GDP, which gives a sense of the consumption firepower that could be deployed just as the US is entering a full reopening.
0: So we could be looking at a, you know, a material catch up in consumption. So where do you think the money will get spent?
1: If we take the, the $1 trillion in underspending, it was, you know, as we all know, concentrated in the services sector. Uh, and But it's hard to know it's hard to really catch up you know, spending in this, this area. There's a limit to how many restaurant meals one can have and how many holidays you can take, uh, especially when annual leave in the US is only two weeks. We think we'll see more domestic travel, but the return to international travel will be slower. Yeah, So that leaves what we would label as big ticket items or trading up. For example, you know, we expect some of this spending to go, in, to go to autos. um, if you recall, the auto cycle was weak prior to COVID. You know, volumes had fallen 20% peak to trough. So we could see a a strong recovery in car demand globally, but particularly in the US. And we also know part of this money is going into real and financial assets. You mentioned the GameStop crowd earlier. With zero commission retail trading, we think retail savings will continue to find their way into the stock market.
0: Mm. It really does uh, you know, feel like central banks globally are committed to remain accommodative, and you know, particularly so in the US. On top of the $1.9 trillion in income stimulus that we saw in January, the Democrats have proposed a $2.25 trillion investment and infrastructure bill. And even just last week, there were rumours around you know, yet another, let's call it $2 trillion package targeting lower income households.
1: Yeah, look, we've held the view that policymakers are committed to avoiding a premature shift to austerity, and vaccines give policymakers that scope to pivot towards investment stimulus. So I think this $2 trillion plus, you know, investment and in infrastructure bill reinforces that view. Look, we've, we've been talking about this for a while now, but decarbonisation is already a central, central pillar of policy across Europe, China, and now the US. Renewables only account for 7% of total energy output across the globe, and you know, this needs to increase to substantially over 50% to meet emission targets under the Paris Agreement. So we are talking about a multi-decade investment cycle for green electricity. The Eurozone is pretty aggressive targets to halve carbon emissions by 2030, which requires you know, inf- incremental investment of around 2% of GDP per annum for the next decade. Remember, Europe's a net importer of fossil fuels, so any switch to renewables is accretive to European GDP and it will also create jobs. Going to China, uh, China's initial focus has really been on reducing pollution, yeah, so we'll see a shift to electric vehicles. And as the economy, as you know, is, is really predominantly investment led manufacturing, property development, infrastructure. So carbon intensity is, is still high, is, is higher than the rest of the world or the, the developed world. But we're now starting to see China prioritise emissions reduction. You know, we're hearing more discussion about reduction in capacity in energy intensive industries like steel and aluminium to reduce carbon emissions. And we think the market has been slow to, to really understand this. You know our, our investment in the Norwegian hydro-powered aluminium producer, uh, Norse Hydro, benefits directly from you know this improvement in pricing power as, as capacity falls and, and the market tightens in aluminium. But so will you know, other traditionally unloved parts of the market. Mm. And the US is also going greener. Uh, the southwest of the country gets plenty of sun and the midwest has, has wind throughout the year. So we're already seeing the development of wind and solar with some support from tax incentives, which we think will continue.
0: Mm. So taking a step back, what you're saying is, is that more green investment you know, is required globally?
1: Absolutely. And it's not just investment in renewables, uh, electric vehicles, but also in grid systems, Building battery plants and manufacturing lines will need to be redesigned and retooled. Look, decarbonisation can ultimately shift the stock market's investment preferences. You know, this has the potential to be a a long investment cycle. You know, the setup in markets today reminds me of the aftermath of the the 2000 dot-com bubble, which saw the emergence, you know, of a very long cycle in value. We had a housing and financial cycle in the US that ultimately did come to an end with the global financial crisis in 2008, quite spectacularly. But we also had the resources super cycle as China entered the world trading system, which lasted until yeah, 2012. You know, we could see something something similar here.
0: It's interesting that the valuation of global cyclicals like materials and industrial companies, you know, companies that will be the beneficiaries of a green investment cycle, still look um, reasonably attractive.
1: Yeah, I I would agree that the higher quality cyclical exposures are still cheap. Uh, What's really interesting is the multiple dispersion, for example, in decarbonisation plays or exposures. It represents a great case study in what has happened broadly across the market. Investors have chased the most conceptual names. Arguably a speculative bubble has already formed in the weaker renewable stocks, you know, let's call it a product of the, of the super low real yield mania, while some of the most resilient exposures to this investment cycle are, are available at, at very attractive valuations. And our portfolio is well positioned for this and has been for some time, you know, with exposure to companies like Siemens, Volkswagen, EDF and commodities that are the key, you know, a key to electrification. Yes, this multiple dispersion has given us an opportunity to add on the long and the short side.
0: Can we go back to that move in bond yields that we've seen over the quarter? So, you know, what do you think all this stimulus, this excess savings and pent-up demand can mean for inflation and interest rates?
1: Look, you know, there's a lot of discussion around in inflation. Look, I think the key question is whether the deployment of the excess savings uh, how much of it is deployed and how quickly it's deployed as to whether it ultimately becomes, you know, embedded inflation. Um, but, you know, if you combine this very loose fiscal and monetary environment, you know, with the reshoring of supply chains and the fact that there's, there's a shortage of semiconductors, we're likely to see a lot more volatility in inflation compared to what we've seen in the past and hence volatility in bonds. And in terms of rates, look, real the real focus should be on real yields, which is still negative minus sixty basis points, which is extraordinary given what we think is happening in the global economy. You know, we could be looking at a, a supercharged second half as the U.S. fully reopens and Europe catches up. You know, real yields can move higher in this environment, which can be and you know can act as a catalyst to continue to tighten multiple dispersion. High yields will really be a tailwind to more cyclical stocks and a headwind to overvalued and weaker growth stocks. You know, there are companies that have been given, you know, in that, you know, that, that category, a, a free pass from COVID tailwinds and not all of these businesses are, are genuine disruptors. There'll be many that see growth rates slow in a reopened environment. And as interest rates normalize, investors will need to reassess what those future cash flows are worth today. These are the, what we describe as the growth traps.
0: Now, before we move on to how you're positioning the portfolio, what are the risks or the issues which you're keeping in your field of vision?
1: Sure. Look, we're keeping an eye on China. It, it, it looks like the credit impulse has peaked and this may, you know, the roll and rolled over and this may continue as, as the recovery gathers steam. You know, policymakers want to keep house prices stable. Quite a different approach than in most uh, Western economies, and uh, you know, really avoid uh, overheating. You know, the question is is really whether the recovery in the U.S. and Europe can offset tightening in China. We think the Chinese will, you know, will be remain quite selective in both tightening and future stimulus, focusing on ongoing rebalancing of the economy towards consumption and de- you know, and you know, this emerging decarbonisation investment cycle. Look, ultimately, we think there will be a hangover from stimulus that we're seeing in the US and other parts of the world. Um, You know, focusing on the US, it's running a fiscal deficit of 15% of GDP and a a large current account deficit. Look, longer term, there won't be a free lunch. you know, in the short term, the, the Fed's providing a lot of support to those deficits. But longer term, we don't think there is such a thing as a free lunch. These twin deficits ultimately need to be funded. This can happen via either higher rates or a weaker currency so while the US dollar has been strong over the last quarter because of the lead in you know in in the vaccine rollout uh, versus Europe versus emerging markets and also just the, the the large stimulus we don't think this will last as the rest of the world catches up from a let's call it an economic rebound perspective We've maintained a, an underweight to the US dollar and instead favour current account surplus currencies like the yen and the euro.
0: And what about COVID? You know, re- reopening really is dependent upon the success of, of vaccines.
1: That's right, and like everyone, we're watching the emergence of new variants, and you know, in particular, we are watching developments in India and Brazil quite quite closely. And. Evidence of a broader spread of the South African variant, you know, for example, in New York and other U.S. cities. We've all seen the headlines that existing vaccines have a lower efficacy in preventing symptoms of today's known variants. But what's important, and we, and we do think this is key, is that existing vaccines are very effective in preventing hospitalizations and fatalities. But having said that, if this changes and we become dependent, you know, more dependent on future development of booster vaccines, then reopening pathways become more complicated. You know, we also need to see more global focus on EM vaccination rollouts. You know, you know, Cross border reopening is dependent on a global pathway to, to herd immunity. We're also watching the progress in vaccine distribution you know, in Europe closely. Economic recovery in Europe. Europe has lagged at the other major blocks because of because outside the UK the vaccine rollout has been slow. Europe's also over indexed to tourism at around 10% of GDP and restrictions have lingered. You know, in terms of cyclical rebound in economic activity, Europe has the, the most upside from an acceleration in vaccinations.
0: So with all of this conversation in mind, can you take us through the current tilts in the portfolio?
1: Sure. Look, starting broadly, you know, in terms of exposure, we have around 40% of the portfolio in reopening beneficiaries. But these clusters, you know, we will continue to rotate as the reopening evolves. You know, for example, we've reduced exposure to candidates that have worked, like some of our financial and retail stocks. But we've positioned for consumption trends that we believe will emerge by adding to autos. You know, we have another 30% in investment stimulus beneficiaries, you know, our connectivity and compute and decarbonisation clusters. And 25% in companies exposed to long-term growth trends like social commerce and workloads moving to the cloud. Companies exposed to trends that will continue even in a fully reopened environment. You know, I I think our top four holdings in the global funds are a good example of how we're thinking about portfolio construction. Two, Two of our largest holdings are Siemens and Volkswagen, companies which the market would label as cyclicals. But what investors I think are missing with both these companies is their ability to transition to secular growth winners. Look at VW. It's gone all in on electrification, so sales won't just be linked to the auto cycle. This company will take market share from its peers as EVs take an increasing large slice of the auto pie. Similar story with Siemens. Yes, a company that has traditionally grown with investment capex cycles, it's a clear winner as we decarbonize. Manufacturing lines will need to be redesigned and retooled and Siemens is the global leader in factory automation hardware and software and has related companies you know that manufacture wind turbines and the equipment we need to fortify the grid. Then at the other end of the barbell two of our largest holdings are Facebook and Microsoft stocks which investors may have traditionally expected to belong uh, you know solely in a growth portfolio because of optically high PEs but we think these two stocks are the definition of pragmatic value you know resilient businesses exposed to long-term structural trends that are valued on attractive multiples relative to their growth rates take Microsoft workloads will continue to move to the cloud and the growth today is happening at the enterprise level you know, Microsoft's Azure is growing f- at a faster rate than AWS and then Facebook which is much more than a platform to watch cat videos. You know, consumption is increasingly influenced by what what we see on social media, and now we consume within, we consume actually as in, you know, e-commerce within the Facebook ecosystem. It's not a surprise to us that Facebook has taken share in online advertising given the intensity of user engagement. You know,
0: there was that great stat that was shared um, within the team recently on Facebook shopping.
1: That's right. I mean, Facebook shopping is now at over 1 million merchants and 250 million users, which is pretty remarkable when you consider the product is less than a year old. To put that into context, Amazon Prime has 200 million members worldwide. Now, spend per customer would be a fraction of an Amazon customer, but it shows an ability to cross-sell e-commerce to their, let's call it, 3 billion users even at this very early stage of their e-commerce push. And we're only paying 20 times earnings for this company.
0: And Jacob, if I can throw in one last question before we sign off. How are you thinking about the net exposure of the global long-short strategy?
1: Okay, at the end of March, we were around 95% long, meaning we held around 5% in cash single stock short exposure was around 12% with another 4% in index shorts. So that gives you a net equity exposure of around 80%, which is at the top end of our, our historical range. Look, I've spoken a lot about multiple dispersion throughout the conversation, but we think this is what investors need to focus on. High multiple dispersion gives us opportunities to add to both the long and the short book.
0: Thanks Jacob. That was our market update for the first quarter of 2021. If you'd like to be notified as soon as our next episode goes live, remember to subscribe to the Good Value podcast. And for more insights from the team, please head to antipodespartners.com and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.